morning. Let me remind you that for the next 12 hours or so, we are still the reigning Super Bowl champions. <sighs> what? So last week, when we were in uh, Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, which reads that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We talked about what it means to believe in relation to what it means to doubt. Kristen asked a good question that I failed to handle well, but she was asking, are we talking just about belief in Christ? Are we talking about just about faith in a theological sense, in a religious sense, or does this apply to, to belief more generally? And B.J. threw up the helpful example of gravity, with which I have ample personal experience. And uh, I, was, I was led this week to a quote from Einstein where he said, as far as the propositions of mathematics refer to reality, they are not certain. And as far as they are certain, they do not refer to reality. On the surface, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that much we can be quite confident of. But when you get down to the quantum level, things get a whole lot more complicated which is the reality that Einstein was referring to. But for the most part, the classic laws of Newtonian physics are going to work well for us. I suppose in some multidimensional string theory world, force equaling mass times acceleration can be somewhat of a manipulable concept. But generally speaking, if you, for example, fall, you're likely to break something, at least if you're me. The question arises, of course, so what, right? I mean, if you believe things and other people believe different things, what does that really, what does it really matter, right? Thomas Jefferson had the famous quote where he said, you know, if my neighbor believes something else that neither breaks my leg nor picks my pocket, there's a sense in which in a civilized world. We have to tolerate all kinds of beliefs. In fact, we can be happy about the fact that we are in a world where we tolerate all kinds of different beliefs, however wrong we may think they are. But the nagging so what question does not go away. Of course, if what Paul is saying about Jesus is true here in Romans, then what's at stake? Only everything. I mean, if Jesus is Lord, then nobody else is. And if Jesus is Lord, then treating him as anything other than Lord is wrong and could have some consequences, which is what I think Paul is alluding to in our passage today. Verses 11 through 13 of Romans 10 read, As the Scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Well, the passage Paul's referring to here is back in Isaiah chapter 28. You may remember when we were at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, Paul was hanging out in this passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 14, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we've entered into a covenant with death, with a grave we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us, for we've made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. It's probably a reference to people in positions of authority who had made compromises, who had made agreements with foreign powers that they expected to keep them safe, to protect them rather than trusting in God alone, as he had told them to do. Well, this is what the Lord Yahweh says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed or disappointed or put to shame. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. Water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. It's too short to stretch out on the blanket, too narrow to wrap around you. Yahweh will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He'll rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord Yahweh, the God of angel armies, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole Remember, this is a prophecy that Isaiah is offering about the destruction of Jerusalem and God's people being sent off. Actually, in this case, probably the fall of the northern kingdom. But Who, of course, might the people be that are not being put to shame? Who's Isaiah referring to here? Well, who might be put to shame? What's that? Anyone? Okay, so anyone who, what does he say? Right? The one who trusts, anyone who trusts will not be put to shame, but who would be? If those who trust will not be put to shame, who would be put to shame? Yeah, the, the, the scoffers, as he says in 14, those scoffers who rule the people. They're in Jerusalem, his southern kingdom, it is Jerusalem. Those, those who hear the word of Yahweh yet scoff, those who boast that they have figured out a way to handle things on their own, they're the ones who think that they are going to be safe, who think that they will not be disappointed, but in fact they are the ones who are going to be put to shame. So who won't be? Those who trust.
And then a couple of verses later, Paul quotes from Joel. It's the second in the book of the Minor Prophets. Just find all those dog-eared pages in Ezekiel and keep going. Past Daniel, past Hosea to Joel, before you get to Amos. Where he says, everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. This is Joel chapter 2. Starting in verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as Yahweh has said, among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Well, saved from what? the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And that's when they get saved, right? If we keep reading, in chapter 3, we get an answer. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then there I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations. And divided up my land, they cast lots for my people, traded boys for prostitutes, sold girls for wine that they might drink. Moving on, verse 9, he says, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. So you're going to beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong, so come quickly, all you nations from every side, and a Assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Yahweh. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. Yahweh will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but Yahweh will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And then you will know that I, Yahweh your God, dwell in Zion on my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. And that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of Yahweh's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. Yahweh dwells in Zion. We get here in Joel 3, the same picture we get in the end of Zechariah, the same picture we get, yes, at the end of Ezekiel, of the nations finally being 
humbled, finally being put down. You might even say finally being put to shame. And you have God's people not only saved, not only rescued, not only protected, but in a very real sense vindicated. You have those who trust in the Lord finally rescued. Finally, events will demonstrate that their trust was not misplaced. The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. In fact, right before the passage where Paul quotes, God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You'll have plenty to eat until you're full. You'll praise the name of Yahweh, your God, who's worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be put to shame. And you'll know that I am in Israel. I am Yahweh, your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be put to shame. We have this theme of reversal. All of the death is replaced by life. The famine and drought replaced by abundance. The insecurity replaced with security. And the shame replaced with vindication. And so Paul is drawing on all of these pictures when he talks about what will happen to those who trust in this Jesus who is Lord that they will never be put to shame. And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and here I'm sure Paul is implying, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who calls on his name will be saved. But here's the curious bit. Verse 12, what does he say? There is no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is rich toward all who call on him. There's a sense in which he's drawing on these marvelous pictures of vindication that we get from the prophets, from Isaiah and from Joel and implicitly from Zechariah and from Ezekiel and from Daniel. But There's also a sense in which Paul is not only tying these together, he's moving them forward in a different direction. Because, after all, what happens to the nations in these stories? They're put down, they're destroyed, they're put to shame. The only nations that survive, the only people who are not God's people who survive that we see pictured here in the prophets are the ones who have come on their knees to Zion, who are bringing tribute to God, who, or those who have sought to join with God's people to become part of them. It's a wild little piece in Ezekiel, by the way, where you have those who are Gentiles who have come into the people of Israel, who, all get, who themselves will get an allocation of land in this, this new arrangement after 
God has set things right on the day of Yahweh. But you still have this vivid separation, vivid difference, don't you, in the prophets between Israel, God's people, and the nations. Yet here what Paul is saying is that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile because the same Lord is Lord of all and is rich toward all who call on him. And this is what he's been saying throughout Romans. If you'll remember back in chapter 2, what does he say? Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God doesn't show favoritism. And then in chapter 3, in verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better off? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know, Paul says, we know that whatever Torah says, it says to those who are under Torah, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing Torah. No, it's through Torah that we become conscious of sin. But now, Paul says, now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from Torah. It's a righteousness to which Torah and the prophets testify. But this righteousness of God comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference. Jew, Gentile alike, both bound up power of sin. Both Jew and Gentile need to be released, saved, redeemed, rescued. And what Paul is talking about here is God doing exactly that, but not in the way that would have been expected, but God doing exactly that in a way that does what he said he would do and more. Because what I left out when I read from Joel was this part. Chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, where he says, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, where do we remember this verse quoted? Not only back when I was doing speech and debate in high school, and I linked this one to a quote from Rush where he says, a spirit with a vision is a dream with a mission. And I tried to slip that one past the nuns and didn't usually go very well. Where do we find this? In Acts chapter 2. And what's happening in chapter 2 of Acts? The day of Pentecost. You have the Spirit descending upon God's people. And they're speaking in the tongues the languages of everybody who's there. And this day that was designed to celebrate God's giving of Torah to his people, now is a day on which he is giving his spirit to all who would be his people. Paul is blowing up these distinctions between Jew and Greek, not because... God is not faithful to his promises to his people. It's because God is opening the door to everybody to be his people. And when we read these prophecies, right, this is all talking about what's going to happen when? On the day of Yahweh, when God finally vindicates his people. But I think if we read what Paul's doing here and knowing, I'm sure, that somewhere along the line, somebody in that Jerusalem church told him about what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, how Peter said, hey, I see what's happening. This is exactly what Joel said was going to happen. I think what Paul is saying here is that this day of the Lord is starting to break in right now, and that this radically inclusive message is one that is not to happen later. It's not something that you sit around and wait for. This is something that is starting right here and right now, in particular right in the church in Rome, the community of Christ's followers that God, that Paul is writing to. As we're going to see, it's a misunderstanding of this division between Jew and Greek that has caused this community all kinds of problems that Paul is going to need to sort out. But first, he once again is tying up the story he's telling about what God is doing in light of what he has done in light of what he has promised he would do. This is the scope of the story Paul's telling, and what is at stake, if, again, if what Paul is saying is true, then what's at stake is only everything. Let's pray. Lord, we who are from the nations especially are grateful that you have made no difference between 
Jew and Greek, that the same Lord is Lord of all, and that you are rich toward all who call upon you. We pray that all of us who are your people, all of us who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, would be faithful to be the people you've called us to be. We pray that we would take your promise that we will not be put to shame, that we will be saved, not as a reason to be complacent, but as a comfort, something that gives us confidence as we live out this faith that you have given us. All this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we are saved.